You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. Uh, my guest is uh, Francisek Baluska. He's uh, at the Institute of Cellular and Molecular Biology, University of Bonn in Germany. So, Francisek, thanks for coming. Hello, Richard. Yeah. So, I see you're, uh, I guess, primarily a botanist, but um, you're also, uh, I mean, looking at the evolution of eukaryotic cells and, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that you're looking at. So, what Maybe give me a little bit of background. What um, what are your scientific interests and what are you working on right now? Yes, so I started, in fact, as a plant physiologist, uh, but uh, from the beginning also I was a plant cell biologist. And the cell biology focus uh, continued through the years. And later we started uh, some projects on uh, environmental responses in plants, especially roots, and firstly with um, gra- gravity and later with light. And somehow also my focus in cell biology was deepened in direction to the evolution of eukaryotic cells. So uh, in, in the end, I am um, now somewhere, I could, say, I could say I'm something in between of a plant physiologist, neurobiologist, and cell biologist. Hmm. Okay. So um, what uh, fascinating or interesting things have you learned about plants, about their evolution the- in particular? So with plants, I'm mostly focusing on the roots and especially on the root apex. And this uh, root apex is really very fascinating uh, structure and organ of the plant. Of course, it, uh, the major function is to uh, search a soil for water and mineral nutrients. And the soil is really very complicated environment. So the roots have very difficult task there. And of course, there is also very big danger. Sometimes there are dry areas or toxic areas, heavy metals and so on. So the roots must be very clever in order to really find the nutrition. And for this, they also team up with the fungi, mycorrhiza fungi. Uh, And so from this point of view, the root apices are also very social. Uh, So not only the fungi, but also bacteria are a lot of bacteria in the rhizosphere. So this is very social life there. And also we found out that the root behavior is much more complex like it was predicted. So they really are solving big problems there underground. 
Well, okay. So what, what are some examples of the complex behavior of the root system? What kinds of things is, is the complexity and how they interact with the microbes in the soil? Yeah, they need to get to, to, to the right place, and this is very difficult in the soil. So they use uh, very complex sensory systems, which allow them to somehow navigate in this environment. And uh, for this navigation, they also use something which we could call cognition. And this cognition is also based on some kind of a synaptic cell-cell uh, adhesion domain. So it is very similar to what we have in our brains, in fact. And Charles Darwin with son Francis, they predicted this, in fact, in already in 1880, the book Power of Movements in Plants, where the final, final paragraph is stating that the root apex is uh, behaving as a brain-like structure, brain of lower animal. So they really solved these problems using very similar mechanisms and especially even molecules. So they have, for example, glutamate using as a as a transmitter and they have a glutamate receptors which are very very similar to our brain glutamate receptors and we still we know more and more than it is more closer and more closer so you know the gap which was uh, some 80 or 100 years ago between animals and plants this gap is uh, at the molecular level and cell biology level is narrowing so they are getting closer and closer so for it to be very simple, is the root, the root apex is what? The root of the root? The root apex anatomically is quite simple. They are also very clearly defined zones, which was, in fact, uh, I think, a very first very important discovery in early 90s, where we found there is a zone which is, in fact, uh, between in between the meristematic zone where you have cell division and the elongation zone where the cell elongates very fastly. And in between, we found and described this zone, which we call transition zone. And this is the zone which seems to be fulfilling this uh, neuronal aspect, so processing of information and also deciding which way to grow next, uh, up, down, right, left. So the root is very flexible. And also, due to this zonation, there are two bending zones uh, which are coordinated. So it means the root can move uh, in a similar way, for example, like a snake or some worm. So we call it also worm-like crawling because they really use these two bending zones and to perform this very nice, very typical crawling uh, movement. So what do you think, what kind of cognition is going on? Is it evaluating the chemical think, the, uh, uh, gas gradient in the soil or what is it doing? They're continually evaluating at least 20 parameters, but we, we are pretty sure there are more. So there are, for example, abiotic parameters like, of course, uh, moisture, water, but also they need oxygen because if, if they don't have oxygen, they suffocate. And they also need to find mineral nutrients, so very important, for example, phosphate or nitrate, which are absolutely essential for the plant. And so, of course, they're also having uh, sensory events from the uh, bacteria or the fungi, so they have some kind of a chemical communication with the fungi and bacteria. They have some friendly bacteria, but also some toxic ones, so they can really discriminate between them. Also, they attract this uh, fungi, this mycorrhiza fungi, which are the symbiotic one, and these are very important in order to get more water and especially phosphate, because otherwise the phosphate is very difficult to find in soil. So if I put um, a plant in, let's say, a pot of soil, and I put a source of nutrients 
if I bury it in the soil in one spot, the yes. the root of the plant knows it can sense it and seek it out, for example? Of course, we know, we don't know exactly from which distance it works, but uh, we are still at the beginning of this, but they can really sense uh, you know, quite far distances. And uh, also they have some social life with uh, with the roots of other plants. So they can recognize self, non-self root from the same plant or the same species. And they can also recognize plants from a different species. And then it depends. Some plants are friendly together, but some are really getting aggressive. And they can then release toxic substances to somehow kill the other plant. So the life hmm. is there quite quite complicated. <laughs> And plants can be also quite nasty sometimes. So it, it is uh, something which we still just start to understand. We are just at the very beginning of this very complex uh, system there. Well, who's doing the experimentation and what kind of experiments are being done? There are really a huge group of scientists who are, for example, studying these uh, roots, uh, mycorrhiza interactions. Or uh, now there are really very fanciful studies uh, with the microbiome. So like we have microbiome in our stomach, in our mouth, the the root right, uh, surface is really very rich, having very rich microbiome. And now there are many, many studies. I just opened today the science, and you can find also a paper on the root microbiome biome there in the science journal today. So these are now very fanciful studies, but of course, these uh, studies are not focusing on the on the cognitive abilities of the root. So this is still outside of the mainstream. So for this, you will not get any project. You, we are doing these studies mostly in uh, some kind of a hobby-like fashion. Well, what is the definition, your definition of cognition? Cognition is difficult to, you know, there are many definitions like with the life. But the, the most important issue is that we consider uh, roots and the plant as a normal living, complete living organisms with everything together. So because uh, currently in the mainstream, they still valid this kind, some kind of a machine metaphor, and so the plants are considered, the roots are considered for some semi, semi automatic or the semi-robotic structures, which are having uh, no cognition, no sentience, no knowledge about uh, themselves and the outside life. But our our point is that they have everything, so they have a real cognition which means that they can understand what is going on around them. They need to be online all the time in order to be able to react properly because these insults are coming from each second to second and there are different insults, so the plant must immediately respond. And then also it is a problem of preferences, so the context is very important, how they respond. If they are not properly responding in the context, it is also then very bad for the root and for the plant. So they need, really need to solve all the time, continuously, many, many problems. And if they don't make the right decisions, then they will not survive. What kind of stresses do plants, uh, are they observed to be reacting to in an, in an intelligent way? It is intelligent way, but in their own plant-specific intelligence, you know, because when that's the problem also with all these words and terms like cognition, consciousness, sentience, and intelligence. Mostly, we humans have start started this research from the most complex system, which is our brain and humans. But normally in science, you should start with the simplest system and then slowly, slowly progress to the more complex system in order to understand it properly. But we were doing the opposite, so we started with humans, and now all these words, which are in fact very general words, they are 
mostly reserved for humans. And if you try to use this word for other systems, then you are blamed that you are somehow mixing up, you know, human business with uh, with a plant business. But it is not like that. So these are really very very uh, basic issues which are valid for the plant in the same way like for the for the humans or for bacteria. And strangely enough, with bacteria, mostly people are not so, you know, negative when they when they when you say bacteria is solving problems, bacteria communicate together. Normally, this doesn't make such troubles like with the plants, which is very strange. Well, again, what are some specific stresses that scientists have observed plants reacting to in what appears to be an intelligent way or a way that requires cognition? For example, it is not easy, you know, to make even even the experiments for this because we study these plants mostly in the laboratories where the plants are kept in a relatively nice environment. So you would need to really go into the soil, and uh, but it is very difficult to perform some experiments in soil. That's the big problem. But for example, uh, you can you can find many examples of how the plants can be even more intelligent as some kind of uh, animals, like for example. When the orchid plants are fooling, you know, the pollinators, and they provide them with the perfect model of the of the female, and they try to copulate, and via copulation, of course, attempts they they pollinate these orchids. So in this example, and there are many many other examples, the plant is really having uh, uh, control about behavior of this of this uh, insect. Yeah, that's the weird thing is how would these plants know what to look like. This is a very big problem. So in order to provide the model, and the model which is absolutely perfect, the plant must have some knowledge about this insect. And the plant must have somewhere, somehow, idea what to provide in order that this guy will just try to attempt to copulate. So they must have really very perfect model. So this is, the, I think, uh, something very puzzling. So where the plant is having this model, <laughs> but I think it is inside of cells, like in our case with humans. So the brain cells, the neurons, are not so much different from the plant cells. Yeah, I was so I was thinking about this. So th- this would mean that the plant would need cells that can take in light yes. and see, yes. and literally see, like we would see. Yes. I'm pretty sure they can see in a day again plant specific way. In fact, uh, some hundred years ago, uh, some German professor was proposing this concept oceli, oceli for plants. And in fact, the features of uh, epidermis cells, leaf epidermis, but also other epidermis of plants, are fulfilling some criteria for oceli. So they called it oceli. And they should be, in fact, able to realize or recognize some features using these cells. And of course, another issue is they can also recognize the sound waves, so they can, in other words, hear. And um, who knows? I think the sensory uh, capabilities are uh, underestimated, but they are enormous. Yeah, because I was reading a book called Virolution by Frank Ryan, and they talked about the hummingbird and the plant that it gets nectar from. And the plant that it gets nectar from, they said, the shape of the opening in the plant is just perfect for the hummingbird's yes, beak yes. to fit in it. How would two separate creatures evolve another, in, in order to be so perfectly matched? How could that happen? Yes, another example are acacia trees and ants. You know, these acacia trees, but they are also example of some other myrmecophil trees. They, they recruit some special ants 
and they provide them very special food globuli. So when the ant starts to lick this globuli, this ant will stop to take any other food. They are completely addicted to this food globuli, and they provide them also shelter, which is having entering uh, space perfectly fitting to this ant. So even other ants will not fit into the into the, into this shelter. And these ants are then protecting the tree against pathogens, against some insects. They even attack big animals like giraffes or humans if they are trying to approach the tree. It seems it well, seems that there is something anyone? something which is making them addictive, and there is something also which makes them more aggressive. So they are extremely aggressive, and they also are addicted just to this food. So they are licking these food bodies. And they refuse even sugar if you give them. They refuse any anything. So they are completely addicted to these food bodies which the acacia tree provided. Wow. So they are like servants, complete servants, and they are very, very aggressive because there is something inside, I think oxytocin or something, which is increasing their aggressivity also. So they are not afraid on, on any, of anything. That's, that's crazy. But there are many, many, many examples of this. Another example was published a few years ago that the tomato plants, which was overeaten by caterpillars, started to produce some chemicals, still not understood very well what these are, which makes uh, the caterpillars starting to eat, eating each other, you know, so they induce cannibalism in caterpillars. <laughs> yeah, there's plants that are psychoactive, that are hallucinogens. They don't move, so they completely focus on chemicals, which, <laughs> which manipulate the behavior of... Uh, of mostly animals or insects or so on. Yeah, how would they do that? That's crazy. This is what we need to find out, you know, but they must be having really very rich uh, mental life, but it is very difficult to first get money for this research, but also to study this because they are completely different organisms. So they are like from different planets, you know. So we, we are still thinking about our animal human origins and we are thinking with the human animal brain, which is somehow not able to, understood these plants so they are, they are, and they are even more complex like like animals i think even from the point of view of cells because they also have not just mitochondria but they have also this plastic chloroplast inside of the cells so the complexity starts already at the cell level they are much more complex have we observed any short-term adaptations within the lifespan of a plant you know that that are surprising or shocking has that ever been observed I think they are they are adapting in fact all the time. So this is what they do, and also the phenotypes are mostly not just what we think about phenotype, the shape of the organ or leaves or roots, but the phenotype is the chemicals. So they they all the time change the cocktail of chemicals, and these chemicals are enormous enormous amount of the chemicals chemicals which they produce. You maybe heard the name secondary metabolites. This was this term was. Um, designed some hundred years ago when we didn't understand for the, what for are these chemicals, you know, but they are not secondary. They are, in fact, very primary chemicals. And these, they use all these chemicals also to survive, to adapt, but also to manipulate, uh, you know, the insects or animals. And they are, they are interested that, that, we, that humans or insects or animals eat some parts of them because then they can get control over these uh, insects, animals, or humans. So this is how they get the control. So they get you eat them, and then then you will get some cocktails of something which we still don't chemically understand completely. What is everything there? Of course, we know what is toxic, what is uh, healthy, something. But there are many, many, many other chemicals, and they make this mixture, this perfect cocktail. You know, this proportion of these chemicals. So it, this is unbelievable complexity in the chemistry. 
Yeah, that's 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 like mind blowing. Um, the plants, I guess, have at their command ways. We think the command of the plant is in the root apex, and is this exactly what the Charles Darwin proposed with his son Francis in this book, 1880, Power of Moving the Plant? So the root apex, and in fact, if you think about this, in this paragraph, last paragraph of the book, they wrote, it is not a brain-like, but it is placed on the anterior body of the plant, which is also another very, very important message. So because we still don't think about plants like having anterior-posterior pole, but they have, and if they have a brain at the root tip, then it's very interesting to see that the sexual organ, you know, the flowers, which because these are sexual organs, are on the right. opposite end. So this is like any any other multi multicellular organisms. You never have sexual organs with the brain together. They are all the time on the opposite poles. You know, so they are with the heads in the, in the soil, in fact. And also the uh, the anterior <laughs> pole is not just the brain, but it is also the the organ of uptake of nutrients and you know for the plant the nutrient is really water and minerals the photosynthesis is just a just a process which is running in the in their symbiotic plastic chloroplast but for them the new the, the food is really water and minerals so they have really had with the brain and the mouth in soil deep in soil and what we see outside is just you know the Leaves which are performing this photosynthesis, it is some kind of uh, support, you know, because it provides them with the with this uh, organic substances. And then we have at the very top the sexual organs, which uh, of course are manipulating animals, insects, because they are not mobile and they need to spread their, you know, pollen around. So that's why they they made these flowers so attractive to the insects and uh, animals. And also, if you look at the evolution, when the flowering plants were evolving, the biodiversity was really exploding because also these pollinators, they were insects, they were birds, there were some other animals, they also then exploded in numbers. So in fact, the, our biodiversity on this planet is based on these flowering plants and they need to pollinate with help of these insects, birds and humans or animals, other animals. Huh. Wow. Um, is there any any papers you've seen that are attempting to figure out the mechanism by which plants make their evaluation of animals or insects or anything? I think what, what, what is interesting, if you if you see the plant, uh, you know, the structure of the organs, of course, the root apex is the most active, but these root apices, you know, they are very tiny and there are many, many, many. But they are linked together and via this system of vascular strands. This is, in fact, system which was studied and all the time until now we studied just for the purpose of uh, transport of nutrients, water, minerals, or, or photosynthates. But it is uh, also connected with very active cells uh, from the point of view of, of bioelectricity and action potentials. And so there are many, many action potentials running from the shoot tip to the root tip and oppositely. For example, if a root tip is having problem with the water, no water around, and many root tips also having this trouble, they send the message to the leaves to close the stomata. So, and this happens uh, very fastly in order to protect the water because otherwise the plant would lose the water and that would be end. So, <laughs> so these uh, vascular systems, they are, I would say, in some other words, of course, it is not completely right, but they are like nerves, you know. They run throughout the whole plant body, and especially important is phloem, which is the part which is for transporting of photosynthates, because this is one 
one cell, in fact, uh, one huge cell, and this is extremely active in action potential. So it is some kind of a spine of the plant, I would say, connecting mm. the whole or all organ in one in one coherent coherent system. Is there any delay in signaling in very tall plants, like tall trees? You know, the uh, the technology is still not far uh, good enough, and also the groups which are working on these topics is uh, now almost minimum. But uh, there are some disputes. How fast are these action potentials in plants? Mostly, agreement is that they are slower, like in uh, animals or humans. But they are still fast enough, you know, to trans- transfer the message within some few seconds from the root tip to the shoot tip, even in the big trees. You know, it's weird. You would think the research on plants would be very cheap and easy to do, and therefore a lot of it would be done. You know, because they're not people don't care about them. That's, that's that's true, but until now it is not the case because uh, you know generally in a, in a mainstream science the plants are not cognitive. General feeling is there just some some kind of semi-robotic systems, response stimulus response systems which are not having all these abilities, you know. So it is still not accepted by the mainstream, and that's pity. So I guess you could say that plants are master chemists and they're like chemical geniuses. Yes. They have their masters of chemistry, definitely. Huh. And they also use volatiles. Volatiles, they release the volatiles for many, many issues. So, for example, they can inform each other if there is some heavy, heavy attack. And they, because the normally really? the immunity in plants is low, because immunity is very costly. If you have very high immunity in plants, you will not have any plant growth almost, because all energy goes to the immunity. So normally they have it down. But if there is some attack, they send around uh, some chemicals, some volatiles, and they then all plants. Uh, start to enhance the immunity. Or they can call so-called bodyguards, which are insects eating or killing the bad guys who are eating their leaves. So they have many, many possibilities how to protect even when they cannot move. So via chemistry. So the chemistry is for them what everything. Are, what, are, what are some examples of plants suffering a tremendous attack and calling in for help or, or helping themselves, like doing coordinated uh, reactions? What, what are some examples you've seen? So there are many papers published around. This is this part of uh, of, of uh, plant studies is running now, even even without co- interpretation like cognition. So they release the chemicals, which first uh, can attract some enemies of these insects. So they can attract enemies, which then kill these insects, or which make them somehow bad, bad oh. issues. Oh yes, these are called so-called bodyguards. So the plant bodyguards, if you give to the Google, you will find several papers on this, releasing chemicals which attract enemies of uh, of these um, caterpillars, for example. It's mm-hmm. another insect, for example, mostly another insect which is um, putting eggs into these caterpillars and somehow getting them out of uh, out of uh, feeding on the leaves. You know, they pro- they prevent them to feed on the leaves more. Or another example was this tomato plants I told you before that makes the caterpillars uh, eating each other, so, so inducing cannibalism. Oh, so the plant can say like, "Hey, there's there's caterpillars eating me! Alert, alert!" And they can put out something that that tells other insects that there's caterpillars there. So exactly, the insects would exactly. come and come yeah, eat them. Yeah. They release some chemicals which attract enemies of these caterpillars, and mostly these are insects also. But what about so exposing plants? To a creature they've never seen before that would want to eat them. Has that, has that been done to see if they can adapt within minutes? This 
could be a nice experiment to perform, but uh, from their history, they will just test several chemicals, which if they work, so they will just make some experiments, I would say. They will just release some chemicals, and if they don't work, they try to adapt the chemistry of these chemicals in order to attract someone. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they can understand what is there outside, but they, they can understand. And this is really a problem for the science, how to how to explain this ability. But why not do an experiment where you have some plants in a room and you have um, you know sensors to sense gases that are coming off of them? Pick one that does this already. Like pick one that caterpillars like to eat, and the plant you yeah. know is attracting insects to kill them. And then maybe you try a new creature. You know, have a dog yeah. try to eat it yeah. and see what chemicals yeah. you put out. Or, you know, so or a person. This this part of research is now quite quite active, in fact, and there are many many groups around the world who who are doing these experiments. So this is now hmm. progressing quite well. But still, you know, the the huge complexity of these chemicals which are released is so huge that, and it is not easy to connect them to some signals. Uh, it's still mostly people think that the, the 90 percent or I, I don't know how much. Mostly of these chemicals are just released by by no no real no real value, and only few of them are used for signaling or attracting. But it is difficult to pre- pre- somehow you know to be sure. My guess is that most of these chemicals will have some function. For the communication, but essentially, plants that have that have evolved to work with other creatures, they have something what you can call memory. They can even predict what will happen, so they expect already some situations. So this all is part of their cognition. So they have ability to store information, sensory information, to combine, process this information according the context. because they, you know this is very important, and also they can use this information later, so they really predict what will happen, and they're already preparing. And you can see this, for example, also in your during a year when the plant starts to somehow, you know, pr- prepare for winter time. So they, they are, this is one very obvious issue. But they can predict something which is regularly happening. They Im- immediately can somehow start to predict that it will happen again. How do you know they're predicting? What's an example of that? Uh, it's difficult to explain to you now with this example, but again, as I told you, for example, the, they can they predict if the winter is coming. You know how what is the according the amount of the light they get, according the temperatures, they know exactly when the winter will be there. You know, even without having any calendar, they know exactly. Oh, so they're evaluating winter. trends and moving averages. They evaluate every every parameter in the environment. Every they evaluate mm-hmm. every, and some of these parameters are for them very important. They prior, they make some priorities also. So something which is not so important is put later lower on lower level. So they must have some working memory space somewhere also. But uh, again, not not easy to understand how this should work in plants. Hmm. What about uh, you said? Plants can communicate with other plants, and um, you know, I guess. Well, do we see that plants communicate with other types of plants, or just with their own, you know, species of plant? No, no, they they recognize themselves mostly on the level of roots, but I guess uh, also it will be on the level of shoots and leaves via this uh, bouquet of these volatiles, which they release all the time, and. Uh, it is still not also not researched properly, but we know that some plants can grow together very nicely and some no. So some of them, 
they they have some preferences of who, who should be the neighbor and if it is not the one they like they start to be nasty they start to secrete from roots some toxic substances and they can even release toxic substances from leaves and uh, these substances for example can have impact on stomata of nearby plants you know so the plant nearby who is under attack will be not able to use properly their stomata and that's very bad for the plant you know and I think also our habits to, you know, having, for example, fields with a huge amount of corn plants or other these crop plants, I think we also somehow stimulate the, some kind of sociality with these plants maybe. So they, they recognize each other very, very precisely. And again, on the level of the, for example, if the wind is blowing and the leaves from the plant, nearby plant are touching each other, they recognize this as a, as a touch of the nearby plant, and they even can send messages then to the root to inform the root that here, I don't know, 20 centimeters is a, another. But the roots also know this because they are growing together in the soil, and they know exactly which roots I'm somehow meeting in the soil. They immediately recognize self, non-self, or if it is a kin, a non-kin root, so and they also then change their behavior because there is also competition in soil for the space. And this is the same like in the, with the shoots. They also fight for the light, you know. So the, uh, it is a, normally if the plants are growing in the dense canopies, they are fighting for the light also in the above ground and they're fighting for the space in the roots. So that's why it is important for them to know if this is uh, the plant from the same species or not. Any examples of plant cooperation within the same species? You know, if you have a field of... Well, I'm not expert on this, so I, maybe I cannot give you now a really good example. I just know, for example, in Africa, because in Africa they don't grow, you know, this, for example, corn in a big field, and they use right. mostly two, three plants together, which which can very nicely somehow cooperate. So I, I forgot the name of the plants in Africa they use for to grow them with the corn, but there are some two, three plants which then mm. somehow give a better, better, you know, result for them. And maybe wow. this would be a good idea more, even for for other world because I think how we grow these plants and because this is mostly just because of the how to harvest them, you know, how it is how it how to harvest them in a in an easy way with the mechanisms and so on. But maybe it is not so good for for the for the nature and for the climate, maybe. But who knows? I don't know. Well, I guess there's so many experiments that need to be done, you know. Yes, yes, of course, and it it should be more supported and it should be more open-minded. But until now, it's still yeah, not not the case. So we just repeat it. Yeah, I was imagining what if you're um, you know you're harvesting a field, let's say of corn, with the you know let's say you're, it's a it's a big field of corn and you start harvesting. By the time you get to the end of the field, I wonder if those plants have gotten messages from the other ones that they're being chopped up and they change their chemistry. The this corn can happen, the... but mostly, mostly when yeah, if if they, if they are still in vegetation time, then it is not good. But mostly, you know, these these are one year crops which are then uh, somehow harvested at the end of vegetation period, then it is okay. That's why it also works, you know, with these plants because if you would uh, harm them during a middle time of vegetation they would certainly start to f fight back are there times when the um the plant is more defensive than others like let's say um like you said in the vegetative state versus the uh you know the flowering or the fruiting 
stage? Is there different behavior that's been seen in response to threats? Yes. Uh, for example, for fruiting, you know, this fruiting is also very interesting because this is the only example where the plant is uh, growing uh, some part of the plant uh, organ fruit, which is this time destined to be eaten alive. You know, this is the strategy how to distribute the seeds with flowering plants. So they generate the whole organ to be eaten alive. And uh, interestingly, uh, they, this uh, fruit, when it is mature, is full of acetylene, which is a stress hormone, originally or typically studied as a stress hormone. But acetylene is also anesthetics. And it was used even in medicine some 120 years ago, even in the U.S., and it was a perfect anesthetic, but there were some uh, accidents because it is flammable, and if you don't make a good mixture with oxygen, then it can be having, uh, you can have some accidents, what happened, and then it was stopped to use. But acetylene is a perfect anesthetic, and uh, it might be, because the plants are producing acetylene anytime they are wounded or under heavy stress. And in fruits, it is used uh, during maturation. When the fruit is immature, there is uh, still not high concentration of acetylene there. And you can even induce maturing of fruits using acetylene from outside. This is how now even companies are doing this, you know. So they they transport immature fruits and then they're matura maturating in some, somewhere in holes with the acetylene. So the acetylene is a fruit maturating signal, but it is again anesthetics also. When you harvest a plant, um, how long? You know, I mean, we I guess we would think as soon as we harvest the plant, it's dead. But is there any evidence that the plant is still alive and still able to adapt and do anything? Of course, if you if you if you have harvested. an apple harvested, I don't know, you can have it two months in your room and it is still apple, and if you bite in it, it is still full of juice, so it is a living, living cells are inside. If it uh, would be not living, then the apple would, you know, be rotten completely. So it is a, the, these fruits are really designed in a way that they, even after they are removed from the from the plant, they are still, still tasty and alive. Huh. I wonder what their abilities are at that point. So how, somehow, I don't know, no one knows how it is, it, why, the, why the fruit can survive so long, you know, even one year you can keep it somewhere in a nice place and it is still okay. So there must be something inside, again, some chemistry, which we don't, still don't know, that it uh, still uh, can be, you know, alive, even if it is not connected to the mature, to the mother plant. But again, what is interesting in connection to stress is this acetylene, that acetylene is produced not just in roots, in any plant, part of the plant. If you make a wounding or you cut the plant, acetylene is immediately synthesized in a large amount locally. So it is, it is a local, I would say, anesthetics for the plant. And they also produce ether, divinyl ether, which is another anesthetics when they are stressed. So it seems that they can provide themselves uh, with the anesthetics when they need it. And they also have many painkilling pain substances, chemistry, uh, which uh, we humans are isolating uh, as a painkillers then and using in medicine. But of course, the plants are, I think, not designing these chemicals for humans, but they, they just, I think they use it also for them, their problems. And they're also sensitive to anesthetics. This is another issue when you apply another anesthetics, for example, completely unknown to the plant, 
like xenon. Xenon is a noble gas used in orthosurgeries, and we use xenon to the plant, and it is uh, getting immobilized. For example, if you use plant like a carnivorous plants or mimosa, they cannot respond to uh, to your to your stimuli anymore under anesthesia with xenon. Which means that even xenon, which they never met in their evolution, they never met to xenon in such large concentrations, but they are immobilized with the xenon like any other animals or humans. Well, it seems like plants have interacted pretty closely with hummingbirds and ants and you know caterpillars. I mean, is there any example of plants interacting with humans in any significant yes. way? Yeah, this is the, our crop plants. I think uh, the humanity, in fact, our civilization started, uh, the, the developed civilization some 10,000 years when we started to use our crop plants. Of course, in our, our terminology, we domesticated the plants. But I think uh, in a true sense, it is not domestication. It is a co-evolution. So we entered into co-evolution with these plants. And it was subconsciousness, subconscious. We, we, of course, we still, or most people will say, okay, we domesticated crop plants like maize or corn. But, you know, without the um, changes from other side, without the plants also adapting to humans, this would never happen. Of course, we think it is because we selected some features and we then somehow guided the evolution of the crop plant. But, you know, in true science, this is a co-evolution between two different organisms. It is not much difference, like, for example, the co-evolution between colibris and sunflowers or between ants and uh, these uh, trees, which keep them. So it is a real co-evolution. And when we entered this co-evolution, we were able somehow to build up our civilization because we were having much more food like before. So we could yeah. start to make cities and start to make some, some you know, high civilization. But this started only after we started to co-evolve with these crop plants. And these are few plants. There are just, I think, six or seven very crucial crop plants on which our civilization and the co-evolution is resting. Interestingly, there are also some weeds which try to look like a crop plant this is so-called Vavilovian mimicry, and it's very also a very interesting feature, again, with the model, because these weeds, somehow they recognize this other plant is a crop plant for these guys here, and I would also like to be a crop plant, so they start to look look like a crop plant, you know, the weeds, oh. even without having a, a good seeds and so on, but they look exactly like these crop plants, and this is called Vavilovian mimicry, because Vavilov was a Russian scientists who discovered this very, very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I think Michael Pollan, the famous author, talked about this. This, this is, <laughs> I think, the plant, plant perspective. So you can see the whole process from the human perspective, but you can also go and try to see this from the plant perspective. But again, I think it is a not domestication. For me, it is a co-evolution. And uh, <laughs> we are coming to the point where, for example, corn is not able to survive without humans. And I guess our civilization would be also not able to survive in present present complexity without corn. So it is really uh, we are we are now dependent on each other, and this is a very tight coevolution. But coevolution is, for example, also between the plants' roots and the mycorrhiza. So the mycorrhiza fungi are so specialized they cannot survive without plants. They they even don't grow when they don't feel any root in the neighborhood. So, because they cannot live without roots, they cannot. They are absolutely dependent. 
So when the co-evolution is very long, then these two organisms are somehow dependent on each other. They... That's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. So what um what are you working on right now? What's your current uh, we are we are now focusing a little bit on the light, and we already discussed this briefly. You know this ocelli, and we have found that the root apex also is having this ocelli, and is able somehow to have some rudimentary vision. We we still don't know how this vision is. You know how powerful, but you know in the soil there is mostly dark. It's a very dark area, yeah. so we would expect yeah. there are no photoreceptors, but. But oppositely, opposite is the case. So we know that in roots, all the photoreceptors of plants are expressed. And the one, which is the photo one, which is the blue light receptor, photoreceptor, is perfectly uh, distributed in a way how you would expect it if the ocelli should be working. And we also provided the roots, you know, with the, with the darkness, because normally in laboratories, the roots are grown in light. They grow very nicely. And when the people started to use, scientists started to use Arabidopsis, they use petris, uh, transparent petri dishes because the roots are, and also seedlings are growing nicely. But we know now, and our results showed, that the roots under light are in stress modus, and they grow mm. faster because they would like to escape from the light. So that's the, that's the issue. You know, and here you can oh. see the difference between plant physiology perspective and plant neurobiology perspective. Plant physiology perspective is, okay, these roots are growing fastly, they are very long, they are in optimal situation, you know. And the plant you say, no, they are not optimal. They would like to escape from the light. They grow faster because they would like to escape. So you have the same result and completely different interpretation, you know. Maybe what, what plant roots, maybe they have photoreceptors because they can sense the gradients of light that comes yes, through the yes. soil. So yes. they know to grow downwards and outwards instead of upwards yes, towards the light. Exactly. You know? They use they use these gradients in order to grow downwards. So they use the gradient of the gravity but also of the light to be, you know, placed huh. properly in the soil. But if you put too much light on them they are growing faster and but not because they are happy with the light, opposite is the case. They would like to escape from the light. And they do any huh. means to escape from the light. Because the photoreceptors are too sensitive, you know, so they are more sensitive like in shoots. And that's why if you would be getting into a room with a huge light, you would be also blinded by the light, you know. So this yeah. is what happens with them. The receptors are too, too sensitive for this light, what we have here, but they are perfectly optimized for the light, which is very low in the soil. But why they need the, this photoreceptor in all of them is very strange. So they, all, they have all of them, at least in Arabidopsis, because this, in this plant we know all the photoreceptors. And there is also one photoreceptor which is only in the root apex and not in the other plant organs. It's a UVB, UVB receptor. So this is our focus now. The, we try to understand these uh, photoreceptors and these ocelli in roots. And also we are continuing our research a little bit now with the anesthetics because I think the, the point with anesthetics can be very important even, even for the medicine in you know designing a new anesthetics which are not having side effects because now most of the anesthetics are still having quite bad side effects and plants can be used you know even for for this research but also on the other hand it is interesting to study these anesthetics on plants from the point of view how their cognition and how the consciousness is functioning you know what is the molecular basis or structural yeah. basis of of the consciousness huh. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this is crazy. It's amazing, you know, it's really amazing. Oh, very good. Um, is there any other, um, 
you know, we've been talking for a while here. Is there any other aspects of plants that uh, you would like to see studied that aren't being studied right now? Um, I think of what what would be very important is that the, somehow the the understanding of plants is really improving also from this point of view of uh, plant cognition and uh, plant behavior. In fact, we initiated a society, I forgot to mention, in 2005, which was called Plant Neurobiology Society, and we were having several symposia, but then there was a problem to you know, get uh, young people there because they were in danger. The career was in danger when they joined our conferences, which is very strange. So we then renamed the Society to Plant Signaling and Behavior. And I also am running a journal, plant sig- or our society is running a journal, Plant Signaling and Behavior, since 2006 already. And uh, also I can tell you that, for example, word behavior, plant behavior is now accepted even by the mainstream. But at the time, 2006, it was, it was not. So I think oh. there is some slow progress, but very slow. Okay. Well, very good. So what are, um, do you have any books or publications people can read? Like, how can people learn more about this? Yes, I'm, I'm having several papers. If you go to my website, you can see also a list of my papers. I am also running these journals. Another journal is Communicative Integrative Biology, also with Taylor and Francis, which is are having a little bit more general scope. And then I'm running a book series in the Springer Verlag, which is called Plant Communication. And there are some 33 books now already out since 2009. Wow. I can I can send okay. you the link to my website, and then there you can see links also to the society, to the book series, and also to my papers. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd like to put that uh, in the podcast. That would be great. If yes, you send yes, yeah. yes. I send you, I send you all the links it's also to the society. Yeah. Okay. Well, Francis, thanks for coming. This has been like amazingly interesting. Thank you, Rich, for calling, and I was uh, really enjoying it also. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.